Hey there, everybody. It's Hugo Bound Anderson here, your friendly neighborhood podcast host. Today, I'm more than excited to be speaking with Rachel Tatman. Rachel's a senior developer advocate for Raza, where she's helping developers build and deploy machine learning chatbots using Raza's open source framework. Rachel has a PhD in linguistics from the University of Washington, where her research was on computational sociolinguistics, or how our social identity affects the way we use language in computational contexts. Previously, Rachel was a data scientist at Kaggle, and she's still a Kaggle Grandmaster. So, in this conversation, Rachel and I talk about the history of natural language processing and conversational AI. And we dive into the fascinating tension between rule-based techniques and machine learning and deep learning. We also talk about how to incorporate machine and human intelligences together by thinking through questions such as, should a response to a human ever actually be automated? Spoiler alert, the answer is a resounding no way. In this journey, something that becomes apparent is that many of the trends, concepts, questions, and answers, although framed for natural language processing and chatbots, are applicable to much of data science more generally. In this light, we also discuss the data scientists' responsibility to end users and stakeholders using, among other things, the lens of considering those whose data you're working on to be data donors. We then consider what globalized language technology looks like and can look like, what we can learn from the history of science here, particularly given that so much training data and models are in English when it accounts for so little of language spoken globally. Before jumping into the interview, I just wanted to thank you for listening. This is our second full-length episode, and we're still discovering what this podcast actually is. I'd honestly love to hear from you about what resonates with you, what doesn't, and anybody you'd like to hear me speak with on the show, along with topics you'd like to hear more about. The best way to let me know currently is on Twitter. At Vanishing Data is the podcast handle, and I'm at Hugo Bound. So please do reach out. Also, as we're just getting started, it would be great if you could subscribe to the show on your app of choice, and if you like it, Write us a review on iTunes and or anywhere else. If you do not like the show, do not write a review saying you do not like the show. Also, I have some personal and professional news. I started a new job recently as head of developer relations at Out of Bounds, an early stage startup where we're building infrastructure that helps data scientists and machine learning engineers develop and deliver real life machine learning projects. So as part of this, we're working on an open source framework called Metaflow, which I'm pretty darn excited about. If any of this interests you, I've included a link in the show notes to a blog post I published last week about how a large part of my mission is to help scientists do better science and why Out of Bounds is a place where I feel I can achieve this through a combination of open source tool building, product development, education, and in particular, interaction with the community and customers. But enough about me. Y'all came here to hear about language tech for all. So without further ado, welcome to Vanishing Gradients. Rachel, and welcome to the show. Hi, Hugo. 
Thank you for having me. Happy to be here. Such a pleasure. And I'm so excited to talk about a bunch of things in the data and NLP <laughs> NLP space, in particular, mm -hmm. how to make um, NLP boring again, <laughs> yes. including all the work you're doing on conversational AI and chatbots. I'm really excited to talk about demystifying the use of machine learning, like when to use it and, and, and when to not. And the other thing I know you're interested in that I'm really excited to hear about is how we approach the globalization of NLP, particularly that so much training data and models are in English when it accounts for so little of language spoken globally. But before we dive into this, I thought you could give us kind of a, a rundown of how you got into the data world and what your trajectory has been so far. Yeah, great question. So I've had, um, I mean, it's been a little bit windy, but I would say that my focus has really been language technology since the beginning. So in undergrad, I was really interested in language technology, um, but I was also double majoring in uh, English literature and linguistics. So I didn't have, I took a, like the, the basic computer science series, but I didn't have enough credit hours to get also a CS degree. So, and the reason I originally got interested in linguistics, I found my like um, undergraduate statement of purpose a while ago. Uh, and actually I was really interested in machine translation at the time. And I was like, well, we have to understand how language works to be able to like translate between languages. So obviously linguistics is the field that's going to have the most bearing on this, which I would say has not been borne out. <laughs> Unfortunately, not the case. Mm. And in graduate school, I realized that uh, NLP researchers really aren't in conversation with the linguistics literature. So I had a lot of interest in uh, speech variability. Um, so I worked predominantly in speech and then more and more in text over the course of gradu graduate school. Speech variability and particularly units of language below the level of the word. Um, so I worked some with sign language. I worked some with um, you know, acoustic data. Uh, and also I did some work on emoji and punctuation and capitaliz capitalization and sort of these sub-lexical features. I mean, sub, sub indicates some sort of hierarchical relationship here. I think there's not always a hierarchical relationship there. And then towards the end of graduate school, I realized just as NLP researchers weren't usually in discussion with the linguistics research, often the people who are building the language technology itself weren't often in discussion with the NLP research. And I think that's changed a little bit, particularly starting around you know, 2017, the Transformer papers, the BERT paper, GPT-2, uh, and the, the discussion around there, I think there got to be more people working in language technology, more interested in the research side of things. But <laughs> I wanted to help build really helpful language technology. Being in industry was really the place where I could do that. So I finished my PhD uh, in 2017, and then I started as a contractor at Google. And then I converted there to a developer advocate, which is I wouldn't recommend that as a career path if you're listening to this and be like, oh, I'll start as a contractor and convert. It was a rough process for me, and I think it's only gotten rougher. And now I'm currently a developer advocate, senior developer advocate at a company called Raza. We are, it's R-A-S-A. -A. We are a startup that builds an open source framework for building chatbots. And then also we have a closed source tooling set for maintaining and updating and doing sort of like human in the loop updates of your chatbot once it's in production so that it, you know, over time gets better and better and a better and better fit for your users' needs in the best case scenario. That's awesome. There's so much in there I'd like to like to unpack. One thing I'm interested in is you mentioned transformers. Okay. Mm. So this is current state of the art. There's a lot of a lot of buzz on one side, maybe hype on the other. I wish we had words which could Take the positive and negative connotations of words and put them. A lot maybe we can discussion. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. That's great. Maybe you could give us a rundown of 
some basics of the history of conversational AI, which could provide a framework for us discussing the relationship between machine learning and rule-based chatbots, for, for example. Yeah, absolutely. So the history of conversational AI is very, very deep. I, I don't remember if we discussed this before, but pretty much as long as computers have been something that people have been envisioning, a lot of people say that the first reference to a computer was in Gulliver's Travels by Jonathan Swift. Mm-hmm as something that we can talk to, right? And that that talking happens in an automated way, automatic way. So that's always sort of been the dream of interacting with computers. And I, I would say we, we got sidetracked by compilers <laughs> to just sort of look at it in a historical viewpoint. That is not a dig at people who work on compilers. It is a joke. So it's got a very deep history in terms of people thinking about it. Probably the first dialogue system that there was a lot of excitement around was Eliza, um, which I... I don't know. I feel like a lot of people in my circles have heard of Eliza, but I know some people probably haven't. Um, so this was a very early system, and it was based on a type of psychoanalysis where somebody tells you something and then you rephrase that as a question. And this was done completely rule-based. So the um, token string was taken in. It was parsed. So parsing is uh, an NLP task where you create a hierarchical structure of relationships within a string <laughs> to other places in the string. I'm trying to avoid saying things like words and sentences because it's not always words and sentences. Mm-hmm. And focus on words is a very English-centric thing to do. Absolutely. So it took the input, it parsed it, it transformed it into a sentence uh, that was a question because, you know, as in, in linguistics, this was back when linguistics and computer science were much more closely related. In linguistics, we have you know a lot of different types of models of the transformations that uh, occur to take a statement and turn it into a question. And that's usually how it's phrased, that you, you have the basis, the statement, and then you turn it into the question. So it was completely rule-based. And it was very popular with the people who used it. So even though they knew it was an automated system, obviously not, no ghosts in the machine, very transparent process, well, transparent depending on how comfortable you are uh, thinking about parsing, a very transparent process for the next turn to occur, people found genuine value in it, right? And its intention was for therapy, is that right? Or it was used? (laughs) It was modeled after it. I don't believe it was ever intended to be like a therapeutic system, but it is how it was used. Yes. Yeah, so I don't think the the original paper, they make any claims about this, you know, solving the need for psychotherapy or talk therapy. Absolutely. Yeah. Although reflection is an incredibly important part of, of therapy. Absolutely. Right? Absolutely. I would probably call it something like a journaling aid <laughs> today. Awesome. Yeah. I love that. So that was the first rule-based methods. I don't want to say that it was the first rule-based dialogue yes. system because I'm sure someone will come at me with an earlier citation. Absolutely. And then the next big, just to guess what you're asking, the next big shift was from these completely rule-based systems where the transformations and roles are written by hand, by linguists, to basically systems where you counted things. So a lot of corpus faith methods, things like Markov models, hidden Markov models, if you're familiar with that, a lot of more statistical methods is what they were usually called, came to the forefront. And these were much fuzzier, (laughs) right? So the the output was like a little bit less predictable, but still deterministic within a distribution. And this was, so I'm thinking in around 2016, when Facebook launched their support for uh, chatbots and their messenger service, there was a huge boom in people building chatbots. And I wasn't, uh, this was actually while I was still in grad school, so I wasn't working in dialogue systems and I was working predominantly in speech. But I believe at that time there probably would have been a mix of statistical methods and deep learning methods in, in play there. Uh, and statistical methods are definitely still used. But the next big shift, which sort of they you know, handed over, again, 
people are still building role-based systems, people are still building statistical systems, but the next big sort of new set of methods was deep learning. And when I was in grad school, like 2016, 2017, the state-of-the-art architecture that everyone was really excited about were bidirectional LSTMs, which is a specific type of recurrent neural network with attention. And in the speech community, there was a little bit more discussion of uh, CNNs for for some speech tasks, but a little bit less on the the text side. And then in 2017, the Transformer paper came out, which is... um, Attention is all you need, Viswani 2017, et cetera, and other authors. It wasn't just a single author paper. And Transformers are, this may be a review uh, for, for some of the listeners, but they are a family of deep neural networks that are basically fully connected. So instead of um, like with a current neural network, you have to train time point one, and then you can train time point two because it depends on time point one. In Transformers, you train all time points at the same time. And the benefit of that is that you can parallelize to a greater degree. So the, the training time bottlenecks aren't there anymore. And the, the drawback there is you have way more parameters, um, orders of magnitude, more parameters than you would with an equivalent recurrent neural network. So that was sort of the, I guess, sub part of the third wave, if you were talking about this in the third waves, the deep uh, deep learning wave. And there has been a lot of work on, uh, particularly with large language models, treating them like dialogue models. They're not designed as, la- as language models are not designed to be, are not designed to be dialogue systems. So these are things like BERT, GPT-3, T5. And you may have said this, but the T in BERT and GPT-3 it's is Transformer. transformer. Yes, absolutely. Could you remind us what a language model is? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, So language modeling is a task from the statistical era of uh, natural language processing where given a, you know, token set that you know about, you are trying to find... given your token set and uh, an input string, the probability across the token set of the next token in the string, right? So just an example, if I had a very small vocabulary of, uh, let's say, I bought a cat and dog, uh, and you have equal numbers of examples of I bought a cat and I bought a dog. If you just gave me the sentence, I bought a blank, and I was trying to predict that word, I would probably give, you know, 50% likelihood to both cat and dog. That's a very high level explanation of what was going on there. Transformer-based language models aren't statistical language models in the same way. They usually just generate the output and they do not produce and are not intended to produce a statistical model of the language as a whole. You can still use some features or not features, but measurements to compare them. Perplexity is a really common one, which is sort of like, it's a measure of entropy, which is an information theory, blah, 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 blah. We can talk about it if you want to. But <laughs> Why do you think neural networks have been so, had the success, let's say, that they've had for these questions? Yeah, great question. I mean, I think there's three answers there. So one is the machine learning answer, which is that they're universal function approximators. So if your function is potentially existent, you can get there. So I think that's the machine learning answer is that they're just very flexible models. Mm -hmm. The sort of history of computing answer is that we had access to data and hardware that made parallelization, you know, graphics cards, basically, uh, being readily available at a consumer level uh, that made it possible for the tractable, like computationally tractable for these to be trained, right? You you had enough data to get to, you know, to not just underbake a model and have <laughs> something useless. You had enough data to get something that got, um, you know, results that were, if not exactly what you wanted, at least a useful proxy, a reasonable proxy thereof. 
So that was the computer science answer and then the machine learning answer. And I guess there's sort of like the cynical <laughs> field Please. answer, which is that if you have enough data and you have enough compute and you can just throw money and labels at a problem, you don't need to spend a lot of developer time or a lot of researcher time hand building stuff. I'm not, you know, trivializing building deep learning systems. I think anyone who's done it knows that it's, you know, it's not trivial. There's a lot of sort of um, secret sauce that goes into it, even to this day, I think. We don't have good theoretical guarantees for a lot in the machine learning space, in the deep learning space specifically. So there's a lot of guess and test. But you don't have to write, you know, a pronunciation dictionary by hand. You don't have to, you know, sit down and develop the parsing algorithm by hand. And that takes a lot of specialized knowledge and it takes a lot of time. So there's something we were talking about a little bit earlier um, where someone was like, hey, we're using the same machinery in computer vision and NLP and, you know, all of these different fields where you know, you can get started in NLP and really not have a lot of language-specific knowledge. You may make a lot of boneheaded, I guess. <laughs> you may make a lot of beginner errors, right? And knowing a lot about language absolutely helps and I think is important. And I mean, I've spent a career learning about language, so perhaps clearly I believe it is a very special type of data that we should treat as such. But if you don't need a linguistics degree, right, if you don't need to understand grammar, if you don't need to be able to do the specialized work, then it does open up the applications more. And I don't think that that's a bad thing. I think it's good for things to be accessible. I think it's good for people to have access to tools to build things for themselves, um, particularly if you're outside of, let's say, the Bell Labs of the 70s, <laughs> if it were, or the, you know, the Stanford of today, and you don't have access to 3,000 willing undergrads who would happily learn your, your very specific annotation system and then annotate you know, 50,000 lines of data for you. But I don't know, maybe I'm just a curmudgeon, but I do worry that not having a lot of understanding of how language as a type of data works has led to some uh, wasted work, basically. <laughs> Like effort on problems that are either not solvable or were solved in the 60s and have like a very complete, very easy solution. Yeah, that's my thoughts on that. So thank you for, for breaking that down like that. And I think the wasted work, you don't sound curmudgeon -y. You definitely don't sound as curmudgeon as I <laughs> feel I sound on increasing number of occasions these days. I, th I think the wasted work is very important to, to talk about, not only because of wasted resources, but how people in these positions feel meaningless in their work when their work is wasted in, in the end. The other side, which I hope we'll get to, is the fact that we're talking about deeply human data as well and what are the rights and responsibilities of everyone involved when working with human data. But before we get to that, I really want to jump in and, you know, a lot of people like, let's let's throw neural networks at this, let's use a lot of machine learning, all of these, and these, these techniques and tools are incredibly valuable, but I know you think in a very principled way about trade-offs between rule-based methods and machine learning methods, and you do this for your work as well, and there are, you know, even regulations involved in this, right? So maybe you could tell us a bit about where we are today, because I think a lot of people think rule-based is the past and machine learning is the present and the future. And I'd like for us to kind of open up that myth and discuss it. Yeah, absolutely. I'll start off by saying that when I, I talk to someone and that is their stance, usually they are someone quite junior in the field. I'm not dunking on people who are new to the field. We all have to learn somehow, right? But I think anyone who's been working with language data, let's say, in you know a professional capacity for like 
Well, let's say five years. You've run into regexes. <laughs> you've absolutely had to use them. And they've been the appropriate, you know, they've been the appropriate tool for the job at the time. So I think it's a missed comprehension, a misunderstanding that rule-based systems aren't still used. They absolutely are. And the benefit of deep learning systems is it does make things that were previously untractable tractable. It does, you know, help with systems where you want flexible behavior and where you either can't or don't want to, or, you know, it's infeasible to maintain a system of rules to create the illusion of that flexibility. And I would also say, speaking of wasted work, <laughs> avoiding that if you can automate it is great. Talking about sort of the misapprehension that rules are gone for good, they surely aren't. They're here. You're going to need to learn Perl at some point, at least a little bit. I'm sorry <laughs> if that is news to you. Fortunately, there's lots of great learning resources out there. And will, will deep learning eat the world? I think is sort of the second question. No, it's a specialized tool. And it's good for what it's good for. It's good for those flexible situations. It's good for, you know, reducing the amount of boring, repetitive work, basically. So a good litmus test that I use is if I can teach a person to do something in like two to three minutes, I can probably do it with machine learning if I have enough ex labeled examples. And if it's easy to teach a person to do pretty quickly, I can probably get my labeled examples pretty quickly because it's probably pretty simple. I think there's also a lot of, I don't want to say purposeful disinformation. One of misinformation is intentional, of misinformation and disinformation is intentional, the other one isn't. I don't remember the difference, but I'm not going to I can say never remember which is, yeah. Right? It's one of the two. But I think that there are a lot of people who are, or have been, oversold the ability of deep learning systems. So they will always make a guess, right? Uh, there's always going to be some sort of output. Like if you're doing softmax something... <laughs> Is gonna so somehow has got to be one, right? Yeah. But that doesn't mean that they can capture signal that's not there. It does mean that to the untrained eye, it might look like it is. Mm. So I think a great example of this would be this is an example for computer vision, the Gadar paper. Uh, I don't know if yeah. you heard about this. It was a while ago. It was a paper that claimed to be able to tell if someone was gay or straight from looking at a photo of their face. And what it was picking up on was, you know, shape of your glasses, right? And I believe uh, Margaret Mitchell actually, uh, and a co-author who I do not remember off the top of my head, I'm so sorry, showed that they were able to fool the system by like changing the angle they took the photo at or like changing their makeup, even though I think it is hopefully clear to people that if I take a photo at a different angle, it does not change my sexual orientation. So you can, especially if you don't have like deep domain knowledge of the problem you're working on, I think you can convince yourself that you're doing something that you're not. And unfortunately, I do think that some machine learning systems, deep learning systems that are out there are being sold as doing things that they can't do. Yeah, and also yeah. I, so we'll include a link to that paper in the show notes. It reminds me there was... Some computer vision problem where it was animal classification of some sort and one of the animals lives in snowy habitats and what mm. the algorithm was actually doing, it was just seeing that snow was in the photo, essentially, right? So we see this crop up again and again. The other, and I'd, this may be a slight tangent, but I think it's probably very important for us to talk about right now, is why are we working on questions like someone's sexuality from a photo, should we be more principled and, and self-reflective in thinking about the types of things that we're actually working on and putting our limited energetic resources into? Yes. <laughs> 100%. 
what a great segue. segue. Absolutely. Yeah. Not everything is worth building. And even things that, you know, may have some value in building have a real genuine potential to cause harm. I think we, we talked about this a little bit earlier, but I don't believe in the United States that software engineers or machine learning engineers have a duty of care towards their users in the same way that like a civil engineer does. Like I personally feel that I have <laughs> a direct duty towards people who end up using things that I work on to not make their lives materially worse and not make their, not perpetuate existing cycles of, of oppression. And that's my strong principled personal stance. And, you know, I, I don't think everyone in, in machine learning is going to share my exact principled personal stance. But yeah, what questions we're spending our time on is a great uh, thing to think about. And with language data, I think something that a lot of folks, again, who are coming to language from a machine learning perspective don't realize is that in every single piece of language data, there are reflexes of your social identity. There are reflexes of your past, of, you know, national origin, potentially, gender, potentially. I'm not saying that you can necessarily detect these things directly from the language, but they are latent variables that might affect your prediction in a way that you didn't intend and you might not have looked for. So speaking of unintended effects, I think being very aware of for the population from whom your training data is drawn, the relevant social factors that are reflected in language use is extremely important and can help prevent a lot of, I mean, A, just systems that don't work being built, which would be good not to do. I think a great example of that would be, I don't know if you, you read this, but a while ago, I believe Amazon had a system they were trying to build to do like resume screaming. Screaming, mm. screening. I actually really love that term. That I feel yeah. like that encompasses <laughs> modern HR in general. Yes. I'm thinking about the monk, the monk painting of the scream, but just like throwing resumes in Holding the air. Holding up your resume, yeah. Exactly. Um, yeah. Oh my God, yeah. But the, the most predictive feature they found about whether offer would be made based on past candidates was I think whether you were on the men's lacrosse team in college. Yeah. It was also female college, if you'd been to a female college as well, it deranked you completely. Yes, which I don't think is indicative of, you know, the abilities of these people. It was indicative of a history of bias in the system. And they did not end up putting this in production. Uh, also, it would have been straight up illegal <laughs> if they had yeah, done I'm also, that. Yeah, I'm so cynical here. I actually, I don't, part of my mind, where my mind goes is, is this even real or is Amazon just, like, is this a PR move on Amazon? Because they made a big deal about it publicly and I... The other thing that I'll include, I don't know if you've seen this, there's um, a game that came, I think, out of a collaboration with Mozilla Labs. I can't remember who made it, but it's called Survival of the Best Fit. And it's, of course, a great a, a great name. But you, in this video game, you play a CEO who's making hiring, hiring decisions, and then it becomes automated, and you see the bias that, that, that creeps out there. Oh, that sounds like a great uh, computing and society project. Yeah, absolutely. The I think this conversation dovetails nicely going back to rule-based versus machine learning in the sense that, sorry, let me let me collect this and get this get this right. Machine learning methods, uh, especially for conversational AI and, and chatbots, are not always predictable. And when you have a lack of predictability, then it can say stuff, which is super offensive, for example. What role does rule-based, I suppose, NLP play in these types of products, particularly at the end of the 
production pipeline, I suppose? That is a great question. So I can talk a little bit about the, the Rosin approach here. And the first thing that I'm going to say is never serve raw generated text to your users. Awesome. So this would be like the raw output of a language model. We know that they were trained on the internet. <laughs> and if you have, you know, done much research into harassment, uh, I think it is not a surprise to you that a lot of the data that it was trained on is, you know, deeply toxic and would be Yeah. I don't know if I've said this to you, but I, I kind of joke like how idealistic it was that we thought allowing everyone to write anything in broadcast mode to the entire world at any time was a good idea. I mean, mm. yeah. you know, we've seen the limitations of Web 2.0 and, and to comment on things. Who would have thought that allowing everyone to comment would be bad? Oh, sorry, go on. I have a, a lot of opinions on the importance of moderation and a strong code of contact and being consistent yeah, and fair absolutely. in nurturing communities. Yeah. It's important and you cannot skip it. And if you try to skip it, you are not nurturing a community. <laughs> You're setting it up for failure. Absolutely. Yeah. So that's the first thing. Just don't don't serve raw language model output to users ever. That doesn't mean that it doesn't have a place. Like so language models are not really as a task, language modeling is intended as part of a pipeline. So for example, in automatic speech recognition, traditionally you had the sort of signal processing part of the, the problem where you took the raw audio form and generated some candidate sounds or words that someone might have said. And then with the language model, you ranked those candidates based on how likely they were. So balancing those two systems uh, then gave you, you know, the most likely output based on both the waveform and your your trained language model and whatever corpus it was originally trained on. So they they weren't as a task originally. They weren't intended to generate language, and they certainly weren't intended to generate language as like the thing that they did. But we've gotten to that point where with large language models, where people are doing that, and I strongly recommend against it. B, and I think there's a larger question there of where do you use rule based systems and where do you use guessing systems, <laughs> machine learning systems, and we use them together. So a um, great example over here is entity extraction. So in uh, a string of text, I want to extract part of that string of text and assign a label to it. So example, if I say, my name is Rachel, I might, might want to extract Rachel and save it as, say, this person's name and you know use it to refer to them later on or pre-fill a form or something like that. So you can do that with machine learning. You can use you know a, a, a neural named entity recognition approach. And we do do that at Raza. So we have uh, the diet is our, our architecture that we've developed, our research team developed, which does both intent classification and entity extraction. It's a dual task. Is that um, an, but also, an mm. acronym or initialism, whatever we yes, call it? Yes, it is. What, what is I it? believe it is dual entity intent transform. <laughs> <laughs> I can look it up if you're interested. Yeah, I believe the paper's on archive. Mm -hmm. And then we also have some, some YouTube videos on it that Vincent, another research advocate, actually, sorry, he's not a developer advocate. But at the same time, for things like addresses, email addresses, numbers, times, we just recommend you use Duckling, which is a regular expression, information, name and entity, not just named entities, but like entity recognition program that was, I believe, originally written in Haskell and has been since refactored into another language by Facebook, I believe, has taken over. It's an open source project, has taken over maintenance. And... I would say for the, you know, when I'm building a system, the systems that I built, probably 80% of the time I end up using the, the transformer-based model and probably about 20% of the time using the regex-based model. But also I'm not doing a lot of like, I'm not asking for people's emails and addresses or things that have like a really strongly templatic, a strongly, you know, predictable template that they follow yeah. as often. 
And then the other sort of place where we use both is in deciding what to say next. So this is usually called dialogue policies. So given the history of the conversation and the current turn, what do you say? And in a platform based on something like GPT-3, you might just use that as the prompt and then whatever the model puts out, you send to the user. Don't do that. (laughs) Please don't do that. I think that there are some fun uses for like that sort of thing, like GPT Dungeon, but that is a game setting and the stakes, if you get it wrong, are very, very, very low. So I would strongly recommend against it for for anything in, in a commercial application. So the way that we sort of handle that balance is part of it is you provide conversation flows. We call them stories of like ways that the conversation could go. And if you are following a pattern that the assistant has already seen, it's just going to keep following the pattern that it's been given. But if there's a time when your user, let's say, interrupts themselves with a different stream of thought, that's when the transformer model would look at the history of the conversation and the stories, which are the training data, to decide what to say next. And I would say, at least in, again, the systems that I'm building for for my stuff, maybe 10% of the time, At most, you'll get the transformer model hopping in. Most conversations, particularly if you really have a good understanding of your users' needs, just follow the templates. It's good to have both, and it helps you build more robust systems uh, with way less training data. Imagine trying to train a neural network to extract emails and only emails. Mm. The other thing that comes to mind with respect to template responses is Mm -hmm. unless you require some sort of validation, like need to confirm that it does fit whatever template In my experience, users will continually thwart what you think the response will be, right? Like you can think you're going to get an email address and you can get anything but, and like you'll be amazed at the types of things people put down, right? Yeah, that's a great point. So our, again, this is speaking in terms of what we recommend at Raza. So we recommend something called CDD, Conversation Driven Development, like tests, except they're human conversations. (laughs) And the idea is that as soon as you have a prototype that kind of works, you get it in front of test users who know that they're test users, right? Don't just like launch immediately. We're not recommending that. And then going through and annotating those conversations, adding them as stories if you can't handle that flow, and then retraining and redeploying. So CICD, but with, you know, adding conversations, adding annotations, uh, and training data over time. So I I mentioned we had like a a closed source thing. Uh, Raza X is the Mm -hmm. the community version of that. So it's, it's really but it's not open source. And that's for streamlining the annotation process, basically. So going through and being like, this turn was wrong. It should have been this. Let's retrain and redeploy. And of course, congratulations on the recent launch of Raza 3. Is that right? Yes, it is. Tell us a bit about that. (laughs) Yeah, it's been a long time coming. So this is our third major version of Raza Open Source 3. So it's our open source framework. Okay, great. We've had some major changes, probably the biggest one from our end, we did a big refactor, tidied some stuff up, a lot of work that I think won't affect most users. But one of the things that we did is previously, when you had language data that you were inputting, it went linearly through the steps in your pipeline. And now it does not have to be linear. You can draw your own custom graph. You don't have to. It ships with a default one. You don't have to touch it at all if you don't want to. So is this some sort of DAG or? It is a DAG, yes. Great. Mm -hmm. So yeah, completely customizable DAG architecture. And the other big benefit of that is a training time because of course we're we recommend retraining quite a bit. So to help keep the time down and also, you know, reduce the environmental impact, only the, you know, components that are changed and then their uh, parents' independence will be retrained to help, you know, make things faster and easier. 
Who doesn't want that? Awesome. We changed how slots work. Um, so these are the, the variables that you store over the course of the conversation. Uh, we made them easier to reset, um, just like you have to be more explicit when you're when you're setting them, describing what they're going to be like to begin with. So more Pythonic. And then our third biggest change was it's still experimental. So if you try it out uh, and run into any issues, please come to our forums or, or give us a GitHub issue. We'd love that. Is a way to track specific events that happen once your system's in production. So you have a, a tracker store, which is basically a database that stores all your histories of conversations. And markers is this new feature. And it's a way to, you know, set a counter that like, hey, every time somebody, you know, successfully orders a car through my car service ordering chatbot, you know, I want to, to add one to that marker row in the table, right? Or if somebody tries to order a car and is unsuccessful, I want to track that. So, um, yeah, it's hard to say whether a conversation went good or not, but it is possible to say, you know, people could do this thing or people failed to do this thing or people asked to be switched to a human. And I think all of those things are really helpful in determining, you know, from a product leadership and design perspective, what what are you doing well? Where do you need to improve? So that's the other sort of third big change. I actually recall from one of your talks, maybe, mm -hmm. I can't remember. I mean, there are just too many things in my head right now and my, <laughs> my neurons are firing, but... Another way of figuring out whether people were pleased with talking with a chatbot is if they choose to the next time they come to chat again. Absolutely. Yeah. Did they like it enough to come back? Which doesn't necessarily always mean that they had a good experience because ideally, like if it's a customer support thing, they never come back because their problem solved right away yep. and they never have another one. And then I think in terms of user satisfaction, the most robust measure, um, so it's a paper from... I want to say 2019, maybe, that found that the single most reliable indicator of whether somebody liked using a chatbot or not was whether it saves them time. So if you can help somebody get done with something faster, good chatbot. If it takes longer than it would have otherwise, it drives them up the wall. And I'm sure everyone mm. listening, hopefully you've had both experiences. Hopefully you only haven't had the things took longer experience. But yeah. I don't know. I, I dream of a time when people don't talk about chatbots because they, they're fine. They work. It's just yep. like, you know, clicking a button works. Something that just came to mind, is there a, an ethical obligation and in some places a legal obligation for chatbots to identify themselves as such? Great question. I'm not a lawyer, so I'm not going to answer the legal question because I don't know. I would say that there's always an ethical obligation for a chatbot to identify it itself as such. And actually at Rasa, we have a set of uh, ethical principles. I'll pull this up and give you the link. Please do. Yeah, it's rasa.com slash community slash principles. Yes, this is something we talk about a lot internally. <laughs> so A, you shouldn't cause harm using an assistant. It should not encourage or normalize harmful behavior from users. Um, so for example, you shouldn't create a chatbot that encourages people to sexually harass people or like reward sexual harassment, which has been a big discussion in the chatbot community. And it should always, always, always identify itself as a chatbot. And actually, when you create a new Roz assistant that's baked in to begin with, you would have to remove it to have it not happened. And then finally, you should have a way for the assistant to prove its identity so that you're not, not impersonating, basically, with an assistant. So those are sort of four main ethical principles. And we also talked quite a bit internally about stereotyping. So uh, avoiding chatbots that perpetuate harmful stereotypes or, you know, misrepresent a group. A very good modern example is how, as far as I know, nearly all voice assistants are female. Mm -hmm, by default, yep. 
Yes, and I think this has caused real harm to real women, in particular women called Alexa. <laughs> There's been actually a spate of women who are called Alexa changing their names because it has made their life awful to have the same name as uh, a wake word. I hesitate to say this, but last February pre-COVID, I was in a in one of these weird you're in the Pacific, you're in Seattle. I was in one of these weird Starbucks reserve places in New York, and there was a couple sitting next to me and her name was Alexa and her boyfriend kept asking her questions and ending the question. He was like, you know, do you want to go and see a movie, Alexa? And I was sitting there just going, what, what is happening here? Deeply troubling. And I hope I, my intention wasn't to stereotype anyone from Seattle. It was just a point of <laughs> connection, connection there. And these Starbucks reserve places are truly, truly bizarre. So where I'd like to go next is to, I think there are probably a, a substantial number of listeners who know a bunch about data science, haven't really gotten involved in NLP. I'd love to talk about how people can get started with NLP. But before that, I was wondering if you could maybe tell us a bit about, at a conceptual level, the differences, like actually the different things you need to think about when working with language data and the paradigm, the paradigm shift there. Great question. Yes. So there are, I think, a couple big things that may or may not seem obvious. I don't know. So the first is that there's no such thing as unstructured language data. All language data is produced by humans. It is produced according to some set of structures. I will remain agnostic as to what those structures are, so as not to start yeah. uh, a linguist beef. And we generally say unstructured to refer to non-tabular data. Is that correct? But, yes. but a lot of the time, non-tabular data is highly structured, actually. Yes. Images um, all language data is structured, are structured exactly. in a lot of ways as well. So that's the first thing, <laughs> is that there is structure there, I think, it can be tempting to ignore things like order. And in some languages, that is not as a big an issue as it is in something like English. English is a highly ordered language. Is that why LSTMs, for example, had early successes? Yeah. So there is some evidence that LSTMs in particular are better at capturing hierarchical relationships between items. So things mm. like parsing, like I mentioned, yeah. than transformers are. I don't know whether that's obtained with new and larger transformer models. That would have been from, I want to say that paper was from like 2018, I think. But yes, so that's the first thing is the structure. It's there. Mm -hmm. You may be ignoring it, but it's there. And that includes things like, you know, markers of social identity. So in a very like, one, an easy way of thinking about this is that if I have produced some language output, you know, at the very least, or at least have sort of a, a general guess about the language that I'm using, right? So you can tell, ah, Rachel is speaking English. She must be an English speaker, right? And that's a, a social identification of me. And you might mm -hmm. identify, mm, sounds like she might be a woman, possibly, which I am. You might identify, you know, oh, sounds like she's American. If you have a very careful ear, you might be able to identify where in the US I am. I am by dialecto, which is a little bit, a little bit harder. I think I know this though. I could is Virginia. Yes, yes, I'm from Virginia. Okay, yeah, yeah but I know that because I know where <laughs> you're from, not because I can recognize. Yeah, yeah. I'm yeah. uh, just like listening to you. We, someone might be able to identify. Oh, you know, sounds like you know, I, I might be able to make some guesses about your gender, about your national origin. So there's a the lot amount of, of people again, who think I'm British is incredibly frustrating as well. By the way. <laughs> But urban Australia I would say you don't sound with British. a lot. No, I know I don't. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, most people have not had training in dialectology and that is perfectly fine. We don't all need it. Mm. The second thing is when working with language data to build language technology specifically, your technology will always be held up to my standard of language use, which is another human. 
So that is the bar. Part of the reason why chatbots are so deeply frustrating is I know how conversations work. I have conversations all the time. This looks like a conversation, but it's failing my basic expectations for how it should work. And like I mentioned, I, I dream of a day when no one talks about or has to think about chatbots because they just sort of work. And that means that we're going to have to meet those expectations of how conversations work. And we're going to have to do it consistently and at a high quality. However, if, bar. yeah, it is. But if chatbots identify themselves, we may actually be happier with them being less, like it could yes. be a slightly uncanny valley conversation and you're okay with that because you know it's a chatbot and you don't require all the human norms, right? Yes, there is um, a lot of support for this, but I also think that that is going to require that you've had like had previous experiences with chatbots and something that makes me excited about the technology yeah. is that it is has the potential to really increase accessibility. Great. So thinking about, you know, even, you know, if you have used voice technology recently in your own life, it was probably, you know, due to a reason where you didn't want to or couldn't input text, right? So imagining all the different folks who, for whatever reason, uh, don't want to or can't input text and being able to have, or can input text, but maybe don't have a comfortable relationship with GUIs or even mice, like using a computer mouse as a learned skill. Mm. And I think as technologists, it can be very easy for us to forget the enormous range of people who have not learned that skill or no longer have it. Actually related to this, I, as, as, as you know, and some listeners may, I, I lived in the US for the best part of a decade. And when I would call my bank or my insurer or heaven forbid the IRS, I had to learn to do a, a horrible American accent in order to be understood by their their voice prompts. And that was that was deeply, I mean, trying to call the IRS is deeply frustrating in, in, in general, but having to modulate my own accent in order to be un, un, understood was, was pretty frustrating. You have triggered one of my trap cards. <laughs> uh, that was the topic of my dissertation, more or less, oh, was wow. variation in accents and mm. how humans learn to understand and handle that difference. And then building, I didn't build a, a full system, but I built some machine learning models using Q-weighting in the same way, or not. And showing that if you use similar Q weighting, so not just the linguistic input, but also broader knowledge about the person, you can make human-like mistakes instead of non-human-like mistakes. Yes, accessibility of voice technology varies tremendously by region, by ethnic group. I shouldn't say by ethnic group, by use of ethnolect. So in the United States, um, some of the relevant ones are Chicano English, African American English, and these are language varieties that have, you know, consistent internal structure that are often associated with members of specific ethnicities or races. That's no. fascinating. And where I know this is going slightly away from what, but I, <laughs> this is this is important and I find fascinating. What's the role of dictionaries in propagating, I suppose, I want to hesitate to say power structures among dialects, but I, that is essentially what I mean. I wanted to avoid that, but I think that's probably the best way to say it. For example, Chicano English in a lot of dictionaries may uh, be referred to as idiomatic or something along those lines. Whereas, yeah. how does that play into this entire discussion, I suppose? Great question. I think that's been an ongoing discussion within the lexicography community. So, I don't want to speak for historical lexicographers because that is not a, a group I'm part of or deeply familiar with, but certainly the sort of current ideal in lexicography, lexicography is making dictionaries. I don't know if I said that. Yeah. <laughs> That's what the field well, is and called. Also, very short note, my mom has had many careers in her time, but she was a lexicographer for some time oh, nice. for, the, for the Macquarie Dictionary in Australia. And mm -hmm. very small note, when they did an abridged version, each lexicographer on the team got to include one of their favorite words that wasn't in the abridged version, and she chose the word defenestration. So, hi, mm -hmm. mom. Love you, mom. 
But yeah, let's go back to lexicography and, and, and dictionaries. So the current state of lexicography, to my understanding as an outsider to the field, is to reflect usage in practice. And that may also include reflecting the variety from which the, the term comes. The uh, Something that's related, and I don't, it's really hard for me not to get sidetracked on language stuff because of course that is my, my passion in life. So the, the annual American Dialect Society Word of the Year which of course is for America, hence the name of the dialect society, often will be drawn from a collection of words that might include African-American English uh, in particular and and other you know, very socially salient forms of, of language use. Yeah, but yes, I definitely agree that dictionaries can have a very normative effect on language and can be used as kind of weapons, unfortunately. But that's in the sort of like published book sense. Dictionaries also exist in NLP or things like stop word lists, which I think people don't use quite as much, but were at one point extremely common. And these are ways of removing very common words. And they may not be used, but if you're learning this stuff in a boot camp or an online course, you'll probably be introduced to NLTK and their stop word list at some point or something like that in, a, in an introductory sense. So it still occupies kind of a top level in the education system. Yes. And I'd say the main reason that we don't use stop word lists anymore is that we have enough memory <laughs> to store the stuff that perhaps doesn't have as much as much signal in it. I've got a whole a whole spiel on data cleaning and removing relevant information. But I am going to answer the question that you asked like 20 minutes ago, which Let's is bring how it back. they get exactly. started. And I, I just want to say thank you to the to the listener. For, for going on this this wonderful journey with us. So yeah, let's yes. let's take it back. Thank you, Rachel. Um, yeah, so my usual recommendation is the textbook Speech and Language Technology by Dan Jarafsky and the second author. Include the link in the show notes as well. So for people who are new to NLP, I would recommend uh, the book Speech and Language Processing by Dan Jarafsky and James Martin. It is available online for free. I So I'm just looking at the... Uh, the webpage now, I think chapters one and 11 might not be. The rest of it is. And maybe also chapter 16. <laughs> okay. And this is, uh, it's a living text. So it's being constantly updated. And it's sort of the, I would say the standard textbook in, in natural language processing and goes through a wide variety of methods. So that's the second thing that I would say is to learn about and try a wide variety of methods. So a very common beginner mistake that I see is wanting to immediately go into using whatever the most popular current neural network architecture is. And I don't think it's wrong to learn, but many times you won't have in an industrial setting the time, the compute, or enough data to justify using, for example, transformers. And in those situations, having a variety of different NLP techniques that were developed in a time of more compute scarcity and more data scarcity will really serve you well. So th those are my two awesome. big recommendations. I, so many things came to mind then. The first <laughs> is when you mentioned a lot of people may not have all the compute or all the time. I think we are in many ways living in the long tail of FANG as a discipline. Or shadow. Exactly, yeah, that's right. The giant, overwhelming shadow, which of course brings a huge amount to the industry as well. But I think the two, the two things that come to mind, the scale, a lot of businesses, a lot of people trying to build this stuff don't even need the scale, right? Let alone have the resources to do it. That scale is with respect to compute, with respect to models, with respect to resources in terms of um, human bandwidth, right? But on top of that, the size of the data. So maybe... I don't really have a concrete question. Maybe you can tell me a bit how you do more with less. Mm, great question. Data scarcity. So my 
And compute scarcity. Compute scarcity. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Which I will say, first of all, is the reality of day-to-day life in people outside of the global north. So I talk to lots of developers who like code exclusively on their phones, which like mad props if that is you or who just have intermittent internet access, for example, or who are working in a language where there is maybe one corpora and it's from 20 years ago that's been published and available to them. So that is, it is not a a hypothetical, it is many people's daily reality. And I would say my number one thing is to look to methods developed before the advent of widespread availability of enormous amounts of data and compute. And when I say enormous amounts of data, I mean specifically for English. NLP has a huge, I would call it a problem. I think some people wouldn't, but I think it's a problem with English centricity. So there was a tweet recently by, I can find this person, I believe I retweeted it. And while you're looking for that, I might just add that, I don't know what the number is, but it's like 75% of the internet is in English or something like that. And when we use such things for training data, of course, like Who would have thought, you know, of course it's going to be (laughs) deeply skewed towards the Anglosphere. Absolutely. And the tweet was by Leon mm, Dersinski, speaking of English centrism, apologies if Mm -hmm. I said that wrong, who was talking about how the fact that we don't say in English in NLP is very similar to how a lot of medical studies don't necessarily say in mice. But it's very important that it only works in mice, right? It's very important that it only works in English. Because if I'm trying to build a system for like Bambara or something, and I just don't have that level of access to data, it doesn't mean nothing to me. <laughs> like, it's nice yeah. for you, I guess, but I'm not a mouse. I'm not using English. Absolutely. I actually want to set the context a bit m- more for this. I was hoping we'd get here. I've actually recently been reading a book called um, something like The Information Society by a Spanish sociologist called Manuel Castells. And I'm just going to read a small section from this book. He writes that scientific research in our time is either global or ceases to be scientific. Yet when science, while science is global, the practice of science is skewed towards issues defined by advanced countries. And this is to make the point of how Anglo-centric and Western-centric, a lot of the resources, a lot of research has been historically, not just in NLP, not only in data science. He continues, most research findings end up diffusing throughout planetary networks of scientific interaction, but there is a fundamental asymmetry in the kind of issues taken up by research. For instance, an effective malaria vaccine, he wrote this pre-2020, of course, an effective malaria vaccine could save the lives of tens of millions of people, particularly children, but there have been few resources dedicated towards the same sustained effort towards finding it. Another example, AIDS medicines developed an HIV in the West are too expensive to be used in Africa, while about 95% of HIV cases in the developing world. So I think this kind of speaks to a, a very serious context in which we're, we're operating, right? And a lot of forces at play there. Yeah. So maybe it's worth going into that in in your world and in the NLP space now. Yeah, yes. <laughs> There's a, a lot to unpack there. I spend a lot of time thinking about you know technological imperialism and the ways that that you know affects people. Um, so one of my, again, I'm going to start talking again about my my very strongly held personal moral values. Um, I really believe in self-determination and in particular self-determination within communities. So I fundamentally cannot know what is most important to say, just like a, a developer in Lagos without asking them, right? Like, and it's not my place to know. It's not my place to make that decision. What's the most important thing? Um, it's, you know, I'm a, I'm a developer advocate. And we talk a little bit about what that, what that means in a little bit, but I'm a developer advocate. So my, my foundational responsibility is to help developers with their, their needs and to, you know, build technology that genuinely solves the problems that they are having uh, and that their users are having. And that 
I don't know. I hope makes the world a better place. I hope <laughs> improves people's lives and is a good use of their their time and effort and resources. And I can't tell you, and I shouldn't want to <laughs> what, you know, the the biggest problems in Nepal are right now from a language technology standpoint. But what I can do is I can elevate those things when I hear about them. So um, if you don't follow, um, I think you do, Hugo, rest of the world, I would strongly recommend it. So it is in English um, and it is a newspaper, I guess an online newspaper, I might call it, mm -hmm. that reports on technology outside of the global north. And I have learned so much and I I want to continue learning. <laughs> I want to continue listening. And on the one hand, I think that it's very dangerous for me or people like me to say what the fundamental problems are and what the most pressing problems are, because I don't know. And I risk diverting effort and resources, of which I have more than my fair share, away from the things that would be the most impactful. And I think like AIDS research, malaria research, great example, self-driving cars, <laughs> something I feel very strongly about that we are, you know, spending a lot of time on that I don't think we're going to get a good return on investment from on a even a national level, even in the US. So there's that. I think there's a lot of hubris. And I think that it's something that, like as technologists, we want to solve problems. And I think sometimes the problem you got to solve is you. <laughs> I couldn't up. agree more. But, and let me get this right. There are several, there's a whole constellation of challenges and concerns here. One is the trade-off between trying to build, quote unquote, scalable products, whatever that means, right? And then trying to actually engage with users and stakeholders and other humans and figure out with them what would help help them. I do think that's a problem endemic in our in our industry in particular. The other is we've kind of seen the fruits of globalization, but also the deep problems associated with globalization in terms of not empowering. And the, the fruits and the problems have not been distributed equally. Absolutely. I wonder if it's worth talking about. You enlightened me with respect to an institution. I may pronounce this incorrectly, but how I would pronounce it at a first approximation is Masakane. I also do not know. Masakane, Masakane. potentially. We can spell it. I believe it's M-A-S-A-K-A-N-E. Yep. And on Twitter, it's at M-A-S-A-K-H-A-N-E-N-L-P. And we'll include that in the show notes as well. But they're doing what looks like a, a lot of incredible work with respect to natural language processing with African languages and dialects. By African developers and researchers. Yes, absolutely. Yeah, something I've been thinking about is, okay, I genuinely believe it's important that we, as a field, <laughs> very broadly, and including people from everywhere in that, empower people to solve their own problems and also make sure that they have the resources to do that, which are two separate things. I think this is a great example of what an organization can look like. And one of my worries is that I think a lot of people in linguistics, a lot of people in NLP are trying very hard to make it very clear that, you know, solving English is not solving language. Also, anyone who claims to have solved English or language is lying to you. And, you know, keep your hand on your wallet. <laughs> this is a general, a general piece of advice from me. Something that I do worry about is if we... So this is an issue that's been around for quite a while in linguistic anthropology. You have a situation where Western researchers come into a language community, work with local, often they're called informants, which I think is not a great way to describe that relationship, but work with local informants and create a, a resource about the language. So maybe a grammar, maybe a dictionary. Um, you can imagine in an LP setting, maybe some language models, a tooling, a corpus, and then they leave. And, you know, this dictionary is published by an academic publisher and it costs $300 and it's not accessible to anybody in the community. So their cultural heritage has been 
exploited <laughs> for gain by someone who's not part of their community. And it doesn't help the people whose language it is in the long run. And I do worry about the same thing happening in NLP. And I think the way that we're going to avoid that is you know, supporting local grassroots efforts to build the language tools that are genuinely needed in situ. Like, I don't think it makes sense to create, again, to use the Bambara example, a huge language model for Bambara. I think it's much more important to build things like tokenizers, right? Those like important NLP pipelines where ownership is, you know, through open source, but the resource stays within the community and is guided by and governed by the community that needs to benefit from it instead of being extracted. Bambara is is from... A language in West Africa, in Mali? I picked an example language. (laughs) Well, I don't know if you know this about me, but I I went to Mali 15 years ago and it was one of, had a life-changing experience there actually. And maybe that's a conversation for another time, but it was very, very beautiful country and incredibly resilient people. So I think this dovetails nicely with something I, I wanted to really drill down into our responsibilities as data practitioners when working with human data. And I want to frame it, there's a flip side to, we live in an age which is all about individual rights. I don't think there's enough of a conversation around responsibilities. And we've seen that in the past couple of years, right? In a very serious way. But I think rights and responsibilities are deeply intertwined. So our responsibilities of data practitioners are in some ways the flip side of the coin of the rights of the people whose data and humans were whose data we're using. So what are your thoughts on this, particularly with respect to the work you, you do, but more generally? That's a great question. So I think we, we talked a little bit about my, my path into language technology. So my background is in social science um, and I have received a lot of ethics training <laughs> around, around data. And it's something that I've thought very deeply about. And I, um, you know, full disclosure, I, there were things that I did in my research that I think were ethically ill-founded and I would not have done now and I regret doing in terms of, you know, extracting data specifically from social media. And I've, I've talked about this at length in other places. And I'm happy to talk about it now. But yes, data is people. <laughs> so all language data is people. Even language data that's generated by language models is predicated on that data that was originally produced by humans. And you can also absolutely extract PII from large language models. Just as an aside here to keep everybody up at night, there is a large and growing body of research showing that large language models or anything that encodes a sufficiently large corpus and can generate language contains pretty big security risks. So that's a fun thing. (laughs) Absolutely. I I just want to unpack... I presume most people may understand what you... I just want to unpack what, what happened there. Models use training data, of course. PII is personal, identifiable information. Oh, yes, of course. But more importantly, people may not realize that if you train on a model and then deploy the model and you give no access to the training data, there's a growing body of research on extraction attacks which allow you to draw out uh, bits and pieces of the training data, including PII in these cases. I, I, I think we don't have any cases yet of it actually being... It, it, it's Not that we know about. It, no, and that's my point, right? So I'm setting up a straw man there in, in, in a certain way. That, that we know, it, it hasn't, we, we haven't heard of it yet, but the fact that it's possible is incredibly troubling. Yes, yeah. And so that would be things like addresses. I expect things like, you know, crypto wallet stuff to be a prime big target into the future. Don't do crypto. <laughs> that's my that's my personal aside. I would strongly recommend against it as an individual. 
Yeah. So that's the, the, even if you think that you've never touched the data directly, you definitely have, mm. or in a way that is, is traceable. And one way that I really like thinking about this, and this is not my original idea, and I do not know who to cite for it, so my apologies, is to think about the, the human data that we use in our work as being given to us by data donors. And the thing about a donor-donee relationship is that it comes with, again, you know, certain moral responsibilities. And again, whether or not these are legal responsibilities, I think is a separate question. But also, I, I mean, legal responsibilities in the end come from moral, like we try to, you know, impact legal systems. Legal regulations isn't always the way, as you and I have discussed, like establishing norms among practitioners in certain fields arguably can be more impactful than like people hack legislation all the time, right? So Yeah, definitely. There, and once again, I, I just want to state that there, there are deep historical precedences for, for these types of things. So I... Listeners may know I used to work in the biological sciences in, in cell biology and, and biophysics. I was just thinking of Loretta. Exactly. So a lot of my former colleagues worked with a cell line, a human cell line called HeLa cells, which were taken without consent from an African-American woman called Henrietta Lacks, who passed away from cancer in her early 30s, I think. And to this day, it's still used. There's, they're fig trying to figure out different ways to right this wrong um, and to make sure it doesn't happen in, in, in the future. And her family, who is, is, is still around, are working a lot to figure this out. I'll link to, I mean, there was something in Nature, the Nature Journal last year, an editorial uh, about it, particularly with respect to policy review and particularly with to action on consent going forward. Her family is like, look, you know, of course these things have happened, but we want to make sure that they don't happen in, in future. And I think once again, establishing that this is not just relegated to the world of tech, of course, it's dire there. And I think a point you've made, I can't remember what, where, is that when we create Twitter accounts, what we sign away to, the fact that we essentially say that all tweets we do can be accessed via the Twitter API and the, the, these types of things. So what's the role of, I suppose, companies in general? I'm trying to be careful. My point is that even when we provide consent, which we don't most of the time, it's rarely informed consent. Yes, yeah, definitely. So informed consent has several components that I think not everyone's necessarily familiar with. So one is that it can be withdrawn. So that's part of the reason why scraping Twitter as a, you don't want to store the tweets, you only want to store a reference to the tweets. So if someone deletes it, you are not holding a copy because they have withdrawn their consent. It's ongoing. So again, at any point I can, I can stop doing it and I should know what's going to happen. Like what's going to happen with my data? What are you going to do with it? Why? I should be able to say like, yes to this part of it, no to that part of it. And like, honestly, you know, the fact that the the standard right now is like the huge EULA and user's license agreement that's just a wall of text that's written in very formal language that's very impenetrable, that as a dyslexic person often is very difficult to physically read, like it's usually in a serif font for some reason. Not always, but often enough that I notice it. Did you see that it was some NLP project that I think the time, New York Times did where it rank the, some metric of complexity, I'm going to get this totally wrong, but some metric of complexity of all the terms of service that we sign compared to famous philosophical works. And like most of them are more complex by whatever metric this is than Kant's The Critique of Pure Reason, something like that, right? 
yeah. read five pages of Wittgenstein or we'll <laughs> post your photo on yeah, the yeah, yeah. Times or exactly. something. Yeah. Yes. And that's a decision, right? Somebody made a decision that this is how we're going to tell users what we do with their data. It's a design choice for sure. And that when we update it, they're, they may or may not be informed. I mean, I think at this point, everyone should be informed. I believe there's relevant legislation. I'm not a lawyer. Don't listen to me about the law. Yeah. Also, you speak to a good point. The asymmetry in legal representation and legal knowledge. I mean, big companies have huge councils that can design these things. And as an end user, I honestly don't. Yeah, something I've been... Uh, I started, a, I don't know that it was a flame war, but uh, certainly a discussion which some people felt very passionate about, about self-driving cars recently on my Twitter, is something that I feel very passionately about. And one of the things that sort of like shook out of it is like, well, you know, when something awful happens to somebody as the result of a self-driving car, we'll figure it out in the courts. Well, I'm going to guess that the pedestrian that gets hit by a car that is pressing charges or, you know, their survivors that are pressing charges are not going to be able to afford as much lawyer as a company owned by one of the richest men on earth. And that's what's going to like determine the history of our, not the history, I mean, it'll become the history, but, you know, the future direction of tech policy, and especially given how, we're getting a little bit into U.S. politics here, but how friendly U.S. courts tend to be towards corporations, that's, um keeps me up at night. <laughs> it's one Definitely. of a long list of things. Yeah, I did see that on Twitter. It wasn't quite a flame war, but maybe it was getting that way. And if anyone, any listener, like, strongly disagrees with anything we're saying, I'd actually encourage you to just send me a DM and come on the podcast and have a chat instead of starting a flame war on, on, on Twitter. <laughs> I'd much prefer that. And actually, that was part of the... I'm kind of sick of conversations on, on, on Twitter at the moment, so that was part of the impetus <laughs> behind, like, a starting to have long-format con conversations. Yeah. Uh, Again, I'd like to move on soon to discuss junior engineers, but I'm wondering if if there are any other points you'd like to hit around our responsibilities as, as, as data practitioners before we go there. Yeah. I mean, I think we have more than we as a field currently want to admit. And something that, again, we, we talked about very briefly earlier is we have entered into a social contract with the people who are, you know, using technology and the public as a whole in our in our role as, as engineers who build things that the public interacts with. And public trust in a sector is a limited resource. And if we squander it by building models that leak data, by building untrustworthy software, by building genuinely harmful things, we don't get it back. <laughs> and yeah, I don't know. I think at some point we'll also deserve to lose it. And I don't want that to happen, right? I genuinely believe in the power of language technology to make people's lives easier and better. It's made my lives easier and better. I don't, I think I mentioned I'm dyslexic. I don't think I would have uh, maybe even finished high school <laughs> without, uh, you know, assistive word processing technology. I certainly would not have finished my PhD. Anyone who's ever had to deal with handwritten or unedited documents for me is uh, acutely aware <laughs> of how much assistance I need. But yeah, we've got to be no, I, I think, A, it's the right thing to do, to be mindful and, and careful and good stewards of the trust that's been placed in us. Um, and B, I think it's the self-serving thing to do, if you would like additional impetus. Yeah, I love that for me and you, like the most important reasons that we're discussing are the altruistic reasons. But even if, if you're not really interested in those, for whatever your own motivations are, the self-interest, like these things are aligned in the medium to long term, not necessarily in, in the short term, but framing public trust as a limited commodity, a limited resource, I, I think is incredibly in, important there. I had questions around junior engineers getting started in the space and also what I thought were different questions around developer advocacy. But I, I wonder if we can combine them in some way. I don't know if that's possible, but let's 
Yeah. Maybe. <laughs> yeah, developer advocacy is, so for those of you who aren't familiar with the field, it's really only something that exists at companies that build developer tooling. So I mentioned I'm at a chatbot that builds a, a chatbot. <laughs> I'm at a company that builds a chatbot framework. So we don't build chatbots. We build the software to help people build chatbots. And it's a peer educational role. So it's someone who, I mean, in my case, it's a machine learning NLP product. I'm a machine learning NLP practitioner. It's a, a peer educational role. It's sort of as a field, we've come to the conclusion that it shouldn't be tied to revenue goals. So we don't sell things. <laughs> we help people build better technology. And it's a great fit for me because I, I mean, one of the reasons I went to grad school is that I was really interested in, in teaching. I really like it. So I get to, to teach and talk to a lot of folks and hopefully help them. That's my, that's my goal. I'll build on that by just adding that it is very important in the tooling space. But of course, a lot of companies whether their main line of business is tooling or not, do work in in tooling. So you can like think about PyTorch and, and TensorFlow and how particularly Facebook is investing a, a lot more in developer advocacy these days. But that's another conversation for another time, Rachel. On top of that, some of the most inspiring... So I work in um, developer advocacy and developer relations and evangelism as well, as you know. Some of the most inspiring developer advocates for me are actually open source maintainers. One of the first, actually, who, when I was working in ac academia, was Andy Muller with, with, with Scikit-Learn. And going to his tutorials made me go, oh, wow, this is so important. And you mentioned conversation-driven development. Andy was telling me a while ago that they practice um, documentation-driven development, which I love as a concept. You know, you write the docs and then build the API to reflect what how you want to communicate to people. I've also run developer advocacy functions in companies and just for all you listeners out there who are into data science and also potentially like into communicating and that type of stuff, developer advocacy is one of the hardest roles I've ever had to fill. And I think there's a huge <laughs> space yeah. that's opening them up. So if you want to chat about developer advocacy or thinking of going into it at some point, I'd really love to talk. But it is very difficult to find people who do this, right, Rachel? Yeah, it is. It's a very specialized sub-career. Uh, we are also hiring developer advocates. or trying. Absolutely. Because you need someone who has not necessarily a depth of experience, but a depth of knowledge and sort of being a, a thoughtful engineer developer so that you can give guidance. And also you need to be good at giving the guidance. So I should say not everyone does, I, I do a lot of video content. Not everyone does a lot of video content. Some folks do a lot of blogs. Some folks do a lot of live talks. Not so much recently, as you might imagine. Mm. Some folks do a lot of documentation work, although often that, that gets shuffled into other roles as well. Yeah, so it's a, it's a pretty diverse field. Yeah, it's hard to fill. <laughs> and the role is is very much community building in a way as well, right? Yes. Which is fun. And just to, you do do a lot of live streaming. I would encourage everyone to check out Rachel's Twitch channel and all of her YouTube content. Is it RC Tatman at most places? Yeah, most places. Although yeah. the majority of my, my YouTube content is on the Raza channel right now. My current That's right. content. No, there's also quite a bit on the Kaggle YouTube channel. Awesome. The other important thing I, I think to mention is that it involves a lot of conversations, listening, learning, and developer advocacy is a two-way street between frameworks, libraries, product, and community of users, right? So getting feedback back to the to the product. So maybe you can talk a bit about what you like there, what the challenges are. Oh, <laughs> I do like it. There's a lot of challenges. Um, so this is the part of work where... If you are a developer in the community, you're not going to necessarily see it. Probably, I mean, there's a couple of big challenges. So one is that usually the developer advocates, we might you know help out on issues, but we're not usually the in charge of the products. 
<laughs> it's pretty rare for the, the developer advocacy team to run the product team. I'm sure somewhere, someplace do it, but usually they don't. So if I'm trying to convince, let's say, our head of product that we need to make a change, I need to like, A, have a relationship of trust with them. They need to have like, seen that I'm not giving them just like a frivolous laundry list of like random asks that people have asked me that I've really like sat down and thought about it. And like, I have an idea of the scale of the problem, like how much of our community is this affecting and then have evidence of that. So I actually do um, a weekly report out to our our product and uh, teams and then DevRel and marketing and and customer success as well, because they also work with with um, developers on like, hey, here's the big issues. You know, here's all the blog posts our community member wrote, members wrote that you might want to know about. You know, this is what people are angry about on the forums. Not that people are often angry about things on the forums, but that's a good way to be like, oh, <laughs> FYI, yep. you should know. We should address this ASAP. So it's a lot of communication. It's a lot of cross-functional trust building. And then it's a lot of filtering. I once heard developer advocates referred to as filters. <laughs> for product teams. If I passed on literally every user request I got to the product team, uh, I think they would quickly block my DMs. They would just tune me out. You know, it takes experience. It takes developing product knowledge, which I think that's part of the reason why often sort of the path into developer relations is from engineering or from a developer position where you've been there for a while. So there are definitely people who've started their career in DevRel. I would say I started my career in grad school, right? That's when I started building language technology. And then I was uh, I did data stuff at Kaggle and then I switched into developer advocacy. So I also followed that that career trajectory. Yeah. Well, one thing you've spoken to there is... The deeply cultural aspect of this, and one one way I think about it is that you want to establish a dev advocacy culture within internal organization where everyone's doing their job and has to be doing their job, particularly at the size of startups you and I work for, but making sure that everyone's aware that they're able to contribute in, in a variety of ways. And what I mean by that, let's say... um we have a new a new feature or a new version of the API. Is it a DevRel or evangelist or dev advocacy person who's the best person to write that? Or is them collaborating with the person who released the feature the best way to, to do that? And figuring, figuring that out. The other aspect of culture, you mentioned that it's all based around, I mean, people would say soft power. I don't really like the term power in this because it's, Ooh, it's a two-way street. But the real truth is that ahead of, this is one of the, like, in our industry, the head of product doesn't necessarily... Like they have to leverage all types of social relationships with engineers in order to get stuff done. You can't tell a head of product, if a head of product's telling an engineering team what to do, that there are problems already, right? I think definitely getting people, letting people know as much as possible about what's happening in the space, particularly relevant to the work they're doing, the problems they're solving is incredibly important. We've talked about the challenges junior engineers face and this arguably is is a very large amount of people so maybe you can tell us your your concerns there and, and potential paths forward yeah so um one thing we, we talked about a little bit earlier so specifically in the machine learning space i mean machine learning as a discipline is fairly old i mean not compared to like agriculture <laughs> but like within computer science it's been around for a bit right so I think the Eliza that we were talking about was developed in the 50s or something 60s does that sound right 50s 50s 60s? or 60s yeah, i think yeah the, the sort of first big wave of funding for, for AI, as generally envisioned, came from, in the United States, defense money. <laughs> a lot of Dopo. it. Yeah. Also early speech work. Also the, the internet. internet. Yeah. yeah. The other yeah, thing probably all that was sort of mentioning, the trends you mentioned before of, you know, rule-based to statistical stuff, to neural networks, to transformers, this type of stuff isn't only in the world of NLP. These are big trends around kind of our 
technologization and informationalism in general. Yep, definitely. In machine learning in particular, sort of each of those waves has also been accompanied by uh, a bunch of hype when they were starting and then a bunch of disappointments and then the money disappearing. We've called <laughs> sort them of the, general. the AI winter. The AI right? winters. We've had three or four <laughs> of them. Or maybe the fourth coming. Winter is coming, right? Eventually, right? <laughs> yeah. But because we're sort of in, shall we say, the summer now, the, the AI summer, I guess the actual summer for you down in Australia. It is. It's hidden up. But La, La Nina is keeping it a bit cool oh, as well. Nice. Yeah. Yeah. So because we're in a stage of like rapid growth and expansion of the field, there are way more junior engineers than senior engineers in machine learning specifically. Yeah. I would say that right now, five years of experience in machine learning is a lot, which is, is really interesting because you think about like, just like databases. Five years of experience in databases is like, it's fine. It's some for sure. Mm. But it's very common to, you know, talk to somebody, or at least it's common for me to talk to somebody who's been in databases since like for 40 years and they're going to meetups and telling about like the one time, you know, the newt was in the server room and, and shorted something or whatever. And if you're a beginner, learn some SQL. That's the best advice I can yes. possibly give. Oh, I think. 100%. Yes, SQL is mandatory. <laughs> Unfortunately, at some point, mm -hmm. you're going to have to know it. If you already use R and are familiar with the tidyverse, a lot of the, the verbiage is pretty similar. So yeah. that might be a little, little step up. But the other thing, going from junior engineer, like looking to senior engineer, I don't know what's on the y-axis here, but there's some sort of step function, right? That we want to turn into Indeed. a logistic curve or something. Like yeah, we, yeah, yeah. we want to make that, getting, like learning and building your career, we want to make a lot easier in the early stages or provide support for people doing this, right? Which doesn't quite exist now in a lot of parts of the, the industry. Yeah, it doesn't, which I think is really, I mean, there's sort of like pros and cons, right? So if you're a junior engineer now, there's a lot of space above you that's empty. But the downside is that space does not have, you know, a friendly helping hand that's reaching down to help you get up necessarily. So I think it can be really hard to find mentorship. I think it can be really hard to find guidance. And, you know, especially in a very changing landscape, it can be hard to manage expectations. Mm. They're coming down to you from, you know, upper management in a way that in a team with like a lot more variation in seniority, a very senior IC can, can push back <laughs> with a lot, you know, a lot more clarity than someone who has just entered their first job, for example, and is the first data scientist at a company where the CEO was sold a bill of goods by perhaps someone uh, fairly unscrupulous talking about, uh, or misinformed perhaps, like, about the capabilities of a specific system or type of system. I, actually, I was speaking so, with someone recently who's a junior data scientist um, for a, a real estate company here in Australia. and. Like one of their executives sent them something the other day saying, hey, I've just seen this TFX pipeline stuff. Can you use that? And they were just like, oh, what? come on, please. <laughs> <laughs> so I think the proliferation of technologies actually as well contributes to the hype and the unreasonable expectations that can be baked in. Yes, 100%. 100%. And this is related to the manufacturing of demand by a lot of companies that, you know, are, are in the space. And arguably also, I just want to be self-reflexive. I do think in some ways I've been part of the problem. Like my incentives as running evangelism and marketing and this type of stuff in companies is to earn search engine optimization and that type of stuff and build content that I think I hope will help people, but it also does perhaps manufacture demand. We have a role on marketing teams called demand generation, Rachel. I mean, this is... 
this is like a very cynical stage of capitalism in a lot of ways. Yeah, uh, we're going to create problems on yeah. purpose. Yeah. I, to be fair, I don't think that's what marketing does. I think that marketing can be a force for good. I don't want to. I don't want all my marketers out there to be like Rachel was mean to me. Well, um, no, but I was mean to myself in that. That, but no, I want to be <laughs> self-reflective on what I'm comfortable with and what I'm not. Yeah. And I do think, hopefully, the companies I've chosen to work for and the work I've done is helpful for most people who I actually view marketing at its best is increasing signal to noise for people who will find the product useful. Now, I've heard yeah. marketers of, you know, toxic financial products say that as well. So, and I don't think, I don't work in that space, but I think it's important to, to be self-critical in that sense. How can we help and I think junior engineers more? Great question. Great question. I mean, I, from a developer relations standpoint, I think a change that I see or a signal that I see that someone's probably ready to move up or you know, perhaps was underleveled and hopefully that didn't happen is moving beyond thinking that being a developer is writing code. So sometimes you'll see, I don't know, I'm sure you've seen these sort of like very snippy, rude comments on Twitter where someone who's like pretty senior is talking about something and someone's like... <laughs> I've never seen a rude comment on Twitter. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, you you live a you know blessed timeline um, where someone will be very senior. They'll sort of be like be talking about like high level architecture stuff, and someone will be like, "You're not sitting there writing code." Mm. And yes, <laughs> I would I would hope that staff engineers aren't sitting around writing code all day. Something would be deeply broken. Yeah. Yeah. So having an understanding of you know if I can hand you like a PRD a product resource description, what's the mm -hmm. R stand for? Yeah, resource description. Yeah. I mean, that's right, yeah. <laughs> and you can, you know, uh, with the implementations laid out and you can sit down and code that up, that's great. I'd say that's, you know, what I'm looking for in, in, in a junior engineer. If I can hand you a PRD with like, hey, here's what I want the product to be able to do and you can sit down and like write down different implementations, talk about the pros and cons, talk about, you know, maybe have some sort of estimation of timelines, always dangerous, <laughs> and complexity and feasibility given, let's you know, say, budgets. That I would say is more senior, regular engineer, and then if you can sit down and be like, here's, you know, a vague description of what the product might be able to do and being able to, you know, figure out what's feasible, what's a good idea <laughs> to do. So some things that may be feasible, you know, I would strongly recommend against on, let's say, legal grounds or, or ethical grounds. Like I, there's, to my standpoint, there's no reason to put facial recognition in a product and you should just not do it. There's never any reason to guess gender. Just don't do it. And being just, able to make those sort of like high level discussions. I actually noted this down when you said, I've never, I haven't heard it quite phrased yeah. like this. You phrased it beautifully. Not everything is worth building. Yes. Right. And, and actually thinking a about that. Um, and I love it because, mm -hmm. you know, we've talked about all the potential harms and pitfalls. We haven't talked about all of them, but we've spoken about some of them. And of course, we know there are a great deal more. Um, but it, it isn't only that it causes can cause serious harm. It's that why are we doing this in the first place? And that's worth reconsidering every time. Absolutely. Yeah. And, and being able to think about things at that level of complexity and scope and you know, impact. <laughs> I hate to say the I word, but uh, the impact of your work is... Um, yeah. Very much so. Foundational, one might even say. I am interested in what excites you most in the space currently? That's a great question. Recently, I've been struggling a little bit because I feel like there's a lot of harm being done, much of it unintentionally. And it can be, again, talking about public trust, like my trust is also a limited resource. And it can be, you know, pretty draining to hear about awful thing after awful thing after awful thing after awful thing. And that 
I think it's important that we're aware. I think it's important that we consider constantly the possible harms that our work could do. Uh, I think security uh, folks are a really good model for this, um, specifically for machine learning folks. Like, I don't know uh, if you've ever spent a lot of time with a security person, they're very paranoid. Uh, yeah. And I think we should be paranoid on behalf of our users. But that's not the whole field, right? There's a lot of, you know, there's a lot of things that work. There's a lot of accessibility features that work. And we we talked about Mascani and um, the sort of development driven by the community it impacts to meet their genuine immediate needs that I think is fabulous. I love seeing, you know, different ways of approaching building software, not just uh, machine learning. There's an app slash website called Miria, M-I-I-R-A-Y-A, I believe, and it sells uh, Black-owned goods. <laughs> so things produced by, by Black-owned businesses. And it's a single developer who's building it. And he's basically building it as a community good, right? So there's there's a Patreon to like pay for his living expenses. Otherwise, pretty much everything is folded back up into the business. Recently, he added a way for people to, you know, provide mutual aid to people in need. So if someone's like, hey, you know, I'm sick, I can't work, I need $200 to help make rent, a way for the community to come together and, and help fulfill that need. And I think that that is a radically different approach to building software, and one that really genuinely interests me and feels like it is a feasible, sustainable, long-term way for us to exist in a society where software is integral. I think there's a lot of that sort of ethos in the open source community as well, that this is something that we are doing for our community to create good. And of course, that comes with responsibilities. And I think the log4j thing is at the top of everybody's mm -hmm. minds right now. It's a heavy burden. <laughs> and uh, it can be a heavy burden, I should say. And I am not saying that anyone is beholden to contribute to open source. I think that that is an awful way of approaching the process. I think you should you should see it as a, you know, a gift and a calling. Yeah. And particularly as you framed part of your driving philosophy, let's say, as um, self-determination, particularly within communities. And Absolutely. Mm -hmm. You definitely, we shouldn't behold people to be involved in things that don't 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 work for them. I I do think you, you will have seen this recently. A bunch of wonderful people have just created the Distributed AI Research Institute, mm -hmm. DARE. Yes, yes. And so this is Tim Nick-Gebru mm -hmm. and, and others. And on their Twitter, on, on, on their website, they have the wonderful sentence, AI is not inevitable. And I think there's a huge growing movement of people interested in figuring out paths forward for, let's say, responsible AI. Yeah. And so definitely f follow their work. There's also great work that the Algorithmic Justice League has done, Black in AI. There are many institutions. We'll in include some in, in, in the show notes as well. But if that's something that interests you, listeners, and arguably... I was going to say, arguably, it should interest you. That isn't what I what I mean. That sounds um, too moralistic for, for for my likes. It's an important conversation to be having, I think. And the more people that are part of it, with from all around the place, the better off we'll we'll all be. I, I feel. And something that I think about whenever I'm in that situation where you know I'm feeling particularly pessimistic is I'll I'll look around at the other people in the community who do also genuinely care and they're talking about it and they're bringing it up even at like great personal and professional cost and that makes me hopeful. Yeah, me too. And that's an, an, another motivation for why I actually love having these long conversations and long format podcasting. As you know, I, I, I've done a lot of online education in, in my time and I've um, 
I get messages from people all over the place saying thanks for the course, and it's it's it, like I, I'm it's so so wonderful. That's something that really really gives my life meaning. But occasionally, someone will message me saying thank you. I learned so much Python from you, and I'll respond, "What are you using it for?" And they'll say, "I'm working in high frequency trading now," and I I'm not putting any judgment on anyone else. I'm talking about my own personal reaction to a message that's sent to me. That I, I always naively in my 20s thought education is a great thing. But once again, education can be used for, for good and, and, and for harm. And I do think having long format conversations where we delve into these types of issues can kind of help bring out the, the depth of, of the lives involved and, and impacted as opposed to, because teaching it a lot of the time is teaching APIs, right? Because that's what people need to learn in order to do stuff. And what else we have in the education system is important. Actually, this is actually an, a really important point. I spoke with um, Jeremy Howard recently of Fast Fast AI and Fast.ai, and he mentioned to me that um, in the, maybe it's on YouTube, I can't remember, wherever the videos are, like most of them have really high ratings, except the ethics lectures, which there's a significant drop there. I think is that people are interested, but they don't view it as necessary to learning these tools. And and I honestly understand if, if I'm working a full-time job and I'm learning stuff in the evening as well and I need to learn stuff in order to do this, arguably we need to open up space and time for more people to learn more things. Absolutely. And if you want to work in the field and you want it to be here in five years, <laughs> I would say start the ethics training now. Absolutely. Really start thinking about it. Absolutely. Rachel, this has been a fantastic conversation. Yeah. I'm wondering if you have a, a final call to action for, for our listeners or something you'd encourage people to think about or, or, or to do. Yeah, I would say just as a, a way to get started with, with thinking about technology ethically is like a very concrete to-do you can do is to sit down and think about what applications of technology you believe in your personal moral framework to be immoral or unethical and decide what you won't build. We are in the hottest labor market of my adult life right now. If you have a technology background, you hopefully are having, you know, lots of offers and, and opportunities and options. Your your labor is limited. You get to choose where you spend it and um, pick things that you feel good about. I couldn't agree more. Thank you so much once again for a wonderful conversation, Rachel. Thank you for talking. Thanks for tuning in, everybody. You can follow us on Twitter at Vanishing Gradients Pod or check out our website, vanishinggradients.com. Look forward to having you join us in the next episode.